Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer, and I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And my friends, there is a passage of scripture that I think about and refer to at least once a week. That's while partaking of the Lord's Supper, and oftentimes more than that. It is Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53 and verse 12. The Song of the Suffering Servant. The fourth and final of what are called servant songs in Isaiah. Paul Earnhardt called this chapter the undisputed jewel of prophetic literature and the passage which many have judged to be the greatest in the Old Testament. In this magnificent chapter, Isaiah writes about the one who holds within his hands not only the destiny of Israel, but that of the whole world. Who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? This is a question that men have asked since it was written, I suppose. It is undoubtedly the question that was on the mind of the Ethiopian eunuch as he read from Isaiah 53, while riding in his chariot on that lonely desert road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. Perhaps you remember Acts chapter 8, verses 30 and through 34. The passage says, And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before her shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? That's a really good question, because there are many servants mentioned just in the book of Isaiah. That word is used to describe Isaiah, an overseer by the name of Eliakim, and King David. The whole nation of Judah is described in the book as the Lord's servant, and the faithful few, the righteous remnant, are also referred to in that way. In the closing chapters of Isaiah, the redeemed in the kingdom of the Messiah are called servants of Jehovah. But distinct from all of those is Jehovah's ideal servant, the Messiah, the one who would bring true redemption to not only Israel, but to all men everywhere. The identity of this servant is not difficult to determine, at least from our vantage point today. He is an innocent, voluntary, silent sufferer who dies to redeem the guilty. Can that description refer to anybody other than Jesus? But the New Testament forever settles the question for those who believe it. 
John in John chapter 12 and Paul in Romans chapter 10 quote Isaiah 53 verse 1 and apply it to Jesus. Matthew in Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 tells us that the miracles of Jesus were a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 alludes to Isaiah 53 as finding its fulfillment in Jesus. We were in Acts 8 a while ago with the Ethiopian eunuch. If we had continued reading, we would have found that Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. If there remained any doubt at all about the identity of the suffering servant, Jesus removed it in Luke 22 and verse 37 when he said, For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. That contained a brief quotation from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. So that which we are going to look at in this episode is unquestionably about Jesus. It is a startling vision that pictures the sufferings of Jesus as well as the glory to follow. The song itself is composed of five stanzas, each containing three verses, and follows the Lord's journey from the deepest humiliation to the height of exaltation. So we turn to Isaiah 52 first and read verses 13 through 15, the first stanza of the Song of the Suffering Servant. There we read, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Isaiah begins with a brief yet very powerful overview of the story. It will end in exaltation with the servant being exalted, being extolled, being lifted up to the very heights. But it doesn't begin that way. It begins with humiliation and degradation. A humiliation so severe that the world would be astonished by the grotesqueness of his appearance, struck dumb by a form so disfigured that it no longer appeared human. But as repulsed as they might have been by his appearance, Just so astonished would the nations be by his ultimate exaltation. We turn now to the second stanza, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. It says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This second stanza begins by highlighting Israel's rejection of her Messiah. The question, who hath believed our report, is designed to emphasize just how few true believers there were who accepted the message of Isaiah and the other prophets. Why was their report rejected? because the Messiah did not grow up as a mighty cedar of Lebanon, figuratively speaking, like they had expected. Rather, he grew up as a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground. He had no form, comeliness, or beauty 
that would attract the crowd. Jesus of Nazareth had none of the messianic credentials that the Jews were looking for. He was born, not to royalty in the halls of a palace, but to a lowly Jewish girl in a stable. His first bed was not the royal bedchamber of a prince, but was a manger for feeding animals. His birth was not greeted by the elite of society, but by lowly shepherds. And this humble birth led to a humble life. He was the son of a carpenter, brought up in the less than desirable village of Nazareth. Do you remember the question Nathaniel asked in John 1 and verse 46? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus had no money to speak of. He said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20. He had not grown up studying at the feet of any of the great rabbis and really had no social standing at all. Remember that the Pharisees asked the temple officers in John 7 verse 48, Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? So he was the rejected redeemer. He was rejected by his own countrymen. John chapter 1 and verse 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. At first even his own brothers and sisters did not believe. Because of his hard sayings in John 6, the vast majority of his disciples from his early ministry would leave him. The citizens of Jerusalem refused to be gathered under his wings. Judas, a beloved apostle, would betray him with a kiss. When he was arrested in the garden, the rest of the apostles would scatter. Peter denied him not once, not twice, but three times. As he hung on the cross, the crowd railed against him, and the vast majority of people today pay him no mind whatsoever. No wonder he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The third stanza, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, reads as follows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Many hold that this third stanza voices the response of the spiritually awakened Jews, those who formerly rejected Jesus like all the rest, but now realize who he is. You might remember that the Jews of the first century were inclined to judge a man's sufferings to be the direct result of his own sins. We see this in Luke 13 and then in John 9 with the blind man and the question of Jesus' disciples, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. As a result of this inclination, as they beheld the sufferings of Jesus, they interpreted that as proof that he was not of God. But now they realized that his agony spoke not of the ugliness of his own sins, for he had none, but his agony spoke of the ugliness of their sins. He was suffering for them and us, and that point is made seven times in this single stanza. Surely he has borne our griefs carried our sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. 
the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered not for his own sins, but for ours. The fourth stanza of the Suffering Servant Song emphasizes that it was all voluntarily on his part. He was the silent, slaughtered sacrifice. Let's read verses 7 through 9 of Isaiah 53. It tells us, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. This stanza reminds me of Jesus' statement in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. His was a free will offering. When his time was at hand, Jesus could have avoided the city of Jerusalem, a city that had a reputation for killing the prophets of God. Instead, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 tells us that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. When Judas came with the band of soldiers to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus could have run away, but instead he boldly identified himself as the one they were seeking. When they seized and bound him, Jesus could have resisted. We sing a song that goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. What an understatement. Jesus said he could call 12 legions of angels in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 53. Now I know Jesus was simply emphasizing the voluntary nature of what he was doing, but that is anywhere from 60 to 72,000 angels. You remember from 2 Kings 19 verse 35 that one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrians in one night? What Jesus did do was to turn to the one man who had drawn his sword in the defense of the Lord and say, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all that that take the sword shall perish with the sword. When Jesus was falsely accused, he could have offered a defense that no lawyer could have argued with. Instead, he stood silent before his accusers, including Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate a second time. When he finally did speak, it was only to give them the paltry grounds for the guilty verdict that they so desperately were seeking. When they nailed the Lord's battered and bruised body to the cross, and the onlookers taunted him to come down from the cross and save himself, he could have. Instead, he poured out his soul unto death. Know this, it was Jesus' unconquerable and unrequited love, not the nails, that kept him on the cross that day. They did not take his life. They could not take his life. He gave it for me. But now in the fifth and final stanza, Isaiah emphasizes the ultimate exaltation of the servant. But it sure begins with some startling words. Look at verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, 
he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We must all understand that the source of the servant's suffering is God. Now that doesn't mean that God did it personally, or that he took pleasure in the pain of his son, but rather that he took pleasure in the salvation that the suffering made possible. It was the soul of Jesus poured out as an offering for sin that made it possible for God to be both just and justifier. God could not simply ignore men's sins and look the other way. The justice of God and the horrors of sin would not allow such. What is taken from God is a perfect sinless person, so created by him. But what had to be paid in return was the life of a perfect sinless person. Jesus was that person. What an incredible price had to be paid. Just as a woman goes through the travails of childbirth and soon forgets the pain and rejoices in the birth of her child, so too the suffering servant is satisfied by the salvation that is attained through his sacrifice. Justification, the possibility of those who were lost being declared free of guilt, is a marvelous result of what he did and he was to be exalted above all others because of his willful and willing sacrifice. There is a passage I want to read right now that acts as the very best commentary of the song of the suffering servant that I know of. It is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where Paul wrote the following, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There is one point that really stands out to me from the song of the suffering servant, this song about Jesus. That is that sin is indescribably horrible. Sometimes folks wonder what is so terrible about a little wine or a little casual affair between consenting adults or perhaps a shady business deal, or a broken promise, or a little gossip on the telephone, cheating on my taxes, or maybe telling a little white lie. Well, if the horrors of the cross are what it costs God and our Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us from them, then they must be black indeed. If Jesus had to die, not just any death, but the death of the cross, then my sins must be unimaginably vile and repugnant to God. But thanks be to God that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son. 
the suffering Messiah. Words to think about. Thanks for listening.